Turn with me to the first epistle of Paul of Peter that he wrote to the Christians who were scattered abroad through persecution and suffering. I'll read the first nine verses, and I want to do an overview of what Peter is addressing here in regard to the gospel hope, both in the first epistle, as our hope is found here and now, and also in the second epistle, we're looking for what is to come. Let's hear God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, ye love, and whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. We'll end our reading there. Let's call out upon our God. Our gracious God and Father, we have come to the end of this conference and its final address. Turn our eyes upon Jesus, that we may behold him through the gospel and be transformed by the Spirit of Christ into his likeness day by day, even as we anticipate with ardent expectation to be with thee forever. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear friends, we've been exhorted, we've been fed and nourished through the gospel, through Jesus. As Paul said to the Galatians, he has been evidently crucified among us in these last days, and we have nourished together and feeding upon the gospel. And I think it's only logical, the topic giving to me to address is this hope, this eternal perspective. But we can't lose hope for the present that we are living in. And very likely, as we see our brothers and sisters in other countries facing suffering and persecution today, we think of those 
who are in Afghanistan and other places. We may soon find ourselves among them. But we need to lay hold upon this gospel hope. This is one of the very first things we do with counselees and meeting them. They, they come to you with their life's problems and difficulties and often have, in some measure or other, lost hope. They see their sin, they see the, the effects of sin in their life and suffering, and they need hope. And we hold out to them when we counsel them, no matter how difficult, no matter how much your suffering is at the present time, no matter what you've endured or what you've experienced, there is hope in the gospel in Jesus Christ. And we, when we don't have this hope ourselves, can very easily succumb to the sufferings and the challenges that we face in our day-to-day lives. And we are reminded in the scriptures that it's in light of this glorious resurrection of Christ that we have this confident hope. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, if we only have hope as it is in Christ having died for us, we're of all men most miserable. But we have a hope that lies far beyond this because he's risen, we will rise, and we will be with him forever. And if we belong to Christ, if we are in Christ by faith, we are united to him and will see this reality taking place when he returns again or we die and open our eyes in glory. Now, gospel hope, I I think, is elusive to to many people and, and even Christians. And I think in part because of the way in which we we use this word hope. Um, we perhaps use this daily in one regard or another. It has a certain tinge of uncertainty, or maybe we hope it will actually take place. I suspect that Dr. Beakey will hope you will stay after the conference to buy a few more books. But there's no assurance of that reality. But the gospel hope is far different from this. It's interesting, in um, my beginning to prepare for this, this talk, I came across, and being a scientist myself, I was intrigued. There was an experiment that was done, hardly to be justified indeed. But back in the 1950s, a Professor Kurt Richter took a dozen rats that had been domesticated and he put them in a, in a bucket of water and, and recorded the time it took for them to actually succumb to the water with, with no hope and, 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 and drowned. Well, there were some of them that drowned rather quickly and there were nine, however, that to his amazement survived for hours and even a couple for, for several days. And he, he was going to redo this experiment and he thought, I'll take wild rats and do the same with them and see, you know, they've lived in water, they've been out in the swamp, they, they certainly will survive longer. He wanted to know how long that would be, so he took 34 rats, put them in the bucket, and with minutes, within minutes, these wild rats just seemed to give up and and drowned. And, and Richter was puzzled. What, what would be the reason for this? And he hypothesized that the domesticated rats must have had some point in their existence that 
they had been rescued from some kind of danger before. And he thought maybe if he would try that with some rats, he could test his hypothesis. And he did it. Again, he, he took some, some rats and put them into a bucket of water. And when they just about drowned, he, he pulled them out, let them dry and breathe for a time. And, and then he put them back into the bucket and started his timer all over again. And he discovered his hypothesis was correct. They swam and they swam and they swam for days, some of them, because they had this hope to be rescued again. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're a bunch of rats. However, I would say this idea of hope is something as God has built into our very being that we need hope. If you go to the hospital and you you find patients who have lost hope because they're filled with cancer. It seems they succumb to this disease much more quickly. And those in the secular workplace have used this very experiment of the rats to falsely at times hold out hope for their employees. They've counseled business owners and boss, bosses to hold out hope. And it motivates people to do better and to, and to continue longer. But dear friends, the hope of the gospel is far, far, far better and different than this. When the apostles speak about the glorious hope, they're not talking about a fairy tale existence that exists after one leaves this world. It's not about getting some kind of good feeling here in this life grin and bear it till you reach the end of your suffering and trials. Keep struggling until you eventually drown in the bucket. No, they're speaking about a confidence of faith. Faith resting on the promises of God are rock solid, are our hope. Another way we could title this last address instead of gospel hope would be gospel confidence. The Puritan Paul Baines said, hope may be described as a certain expectation to attain everything faith believes, grounded only in God's grace. And this is what Peter seeking to do, I believe, in his epistles. Remember in this first epistle, he is writing to those who had been scattered abroad, dispersed like seed over the whole whole earth. Peter understood that those to whom he had written faced perilous times. When he wrote this letter, terrible persecution had broken out against Christians As a result of Nero's instigation, a Roman historian claimed that later at the time of 68 AD that every Christian in Rome had either lost his life or had fled. Now Peter is writing into this context of what was beginning to take place and would soon, he he understood, flow into Asia Minor. And he says in verse 6, in heaviness, through manifold temptations. You are suffering. You are being buffeted on every side. They were suffering reproach and shame, having 
confess the name of Jesus Christ. And Peter is writing to them to encourage them in the gospel, there is hope. And Peter gives them greeting, and this is how he begins his letter to them. He he begins in the triune God, and isn't that where we began in our conference? In the plan that God himself had for the gospel. The Father who elected, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Let that settle home in your hearts today. As you face difficulty, as you face suffering and challenge, whatever it might be, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father who loved sinners, people, to give them to his Son. He chose them. How will this purpose fail? That is gospel hope. The Son who, Peter says here, has given his blood and his obedience. We saw that in the active and passive passive obedience of, of Christ. And he speaks of the Holy Spirit who brings home this knowledge of sanctification we have heard just moments ago. And Peter tells them, you have begun, been begotten again by this abundant mercy. Born again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why does Peter say this? It's because this is not who they previously were. They had been raised again to newness of life, meaning, therefore, they had previously been dead. They had previously been without hope and without God in this present world. And we saw that today. We saw that in our conference also yesterday. The great need that we have because we are without God in this present evil world. What have you done? What are people doing today as we face these uncertainties in our present world? They are hoping in many different things. Hoping in other people. Hoping in what others are telling them is going to actually take place. People have been putting their hope in unrestricted pleasure and sin. But all of this, the scriptures tell us, is going to run eventually into a dead end. Any person who is outside of Christ, the scriptures tell us plainly, is without hope. But the Christian has a real hope. They have a real foundation that will not crumble and collapse. The world is hunting for hope everywhere, and it's the believer, it's the church of Christ who has the answer to all their questions and struggles. Therefore, if we've been born again, we have this lively hope. We have a confident expectation. God is with us. God is in us. He will bring us to the shores of eternity and take him to our, uh, himself eternally. Now, that doesn't mean, however, that we're instantly full of this gospel hope at regeneration and conversion. No, this hope is to grow with greater levels of confidence as he upholds us day by day by his grace. Isn't that what Peter, who's 
writing these words experienced? Think of Peter with me for a moment. He, he was at the shore fishing and hearing of the Master, the Messiah, preaching and catching the, the fish. And he falls on his knees before Christ. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And he began to follow Christ and he saw many things. He witnessed Jesus' baptism. He, he heard the voice of the Father from heaven. He was on the mountain of transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before them. And again, a voice from heaven. He made confession, thou art the Christ. Peter was there when Jesus entered the cemetery with the grieving family of Lazarus and heard him say, Lazarus, come forth. And he arose. He was there when Jesus rode on the donkey into Jerusalem. And no doubt, Peter, with the others, were filled with hope. But it was a misplaced hope. It was not always resting on the right foundation. It seems for all the disciples, even as they were gathering for the last meal, when hopes were running high, what was their hope? That God would again restore the kingdom. That Rome would be overturned. Isn't this what the two travelers said? We had hoped it was he who would deliver Israel. But in those final hours, when they stood around the cross and they saw him die, their hope nearly perished. And imagine Peter, who hours before had stood in the hall and said with cursing, I don't know that man. What about his hope? But here is Peter, raised up from all that suffering and challenge within himself, and all that was taking place around him to be able to say to those who were scattered abroad and to us, we've been raised to a hope, a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Reformed believers, we have much to say about our Lord's death, his suffering, his obedience. But there's something else about his resurrection that needs to captivate our hearts more. Our Lord is a living Lord. He is the living Christ. Any hope that Peter had in himself disintegrated, as it were, came apart when all these events were taking place. And his only hope was when Jesus rose from the dead and he met him. And Jesus asked him the question, do you love me? You know everything, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. This was the hope that could not be extinguished in the heart of the apostle Peter. And now many years later, Peter is writing this letter to those who are downcast and discouraged. 
Note well what he says here in in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What an abundant mercy. This mercy has given us over the past days to reflect upon and consider and think about the mercy of God to sinners to provide us this expectant hope. And as Peter begins this epistle, you'll, you'll note if you read through these epistles and the uh, chapters of these two epistles in the coming days, he is reemphasizing, traversing through this letter, you will say layer upon layer of this concept of hope appearing and reappearing. Peter is writing to those who are pressed down and he wants them to be grounded even in this circumstance of their life, in this foundational hope of the gospel. No matter who they were or who you are, no matter what they had done or what you have done, Peter is saying, I have denied him. I've demonstrated by my action it didn't seem I loved him. I had confusion about where my hope was to be placed. But Peter is saying, overshadowing all of this, our risen Lord is the foundation of hope. When you lose everything else, rest on this. And it's this hope that is drawing us to heaven itself. The writer to the Hebrews puts it this way, chapter 6, 18, in which it was impossible for God to lie We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. It is anchored, firm, steadfast in the risen Lord who is in glory at his Father's right hand. Both sure and steadfast. And which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner for us is entered, even Jesus, made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Peter is saying to those scattered abroad, he's saying to us this afternoon, the implications of my Lord's resurrection means I've been begotten again to a lively hope from the dead. Is this your confidence, dear believer? The world tries to set before us hope. Think about the political scene. You see all kinds of people hoping for something. But we have the only sure, confident hope. People around us are perishing. At every turn. And Paul is saying to us, Romans 8, for we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? For if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. 
You know, if we look with our natural eyes over all that's taking place around us in the world, it seems it's lost. It seems that we will suffer. But this childlike confidence is we don't rest in the things we see, but in a risen Lord who sits in glory. It's a childlike confidence. It's something like a father who I read about was uh, telling his son, and the anticipation was building. He was going to take his son fishing, and he, he's putting his son to bed, and his son looks up at his father's face, and he, he, he said to, to him, thanks, Dad, for tomorrow. Are we living in light of this glorious hope of what is coming? It gives us hope even now. And Peter is reminding us this hope is not dependent on us. It is dependent on the mercy of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is this comparison that Peter gives to us that it is this mercy that has begotten us again to a lively hope. We are alive in Christ. Now, if I were to ask you uh, to prove to me, if I, if I met you out in the hall afterwards and I said, now prove to me you're, you're alive, you think it's a foolish question. You say, you want me to go home and get my birth certificate? You want me to call uh, my mother and you can talk to her? No, you're alive. You're, you're living and you're breathing and you're communicating and you have life. Peter is saying those who are alive, living, breathing, in relationship to God, love God. We live in the hope and the power of the resurrection. Indeed, we were once dead, but now we are alive. And Peter is saying, as he continues on, it is a resurrection that will lead to an inheritance, verse 4, that is incorruptible, undefiled, and that fades not away. It's reserved in heaven for you where moth and rust does not corrupt. Don't put your hope and confidence in the things of this world and the things you see with your eyes. They will fade away. They will disappoint. But this hope will carry us through to the end. And though we face manifold temptations and suffering, when we grasp the significance of what Peter is saying about our Lord's resurrection, we too will be filled increasingly as we understand this truth with gospel hope, an unshakable confidence. And that's why Peter is saying to those, we are pilgrims and strangers here. Because we are looking beyond the resurrection to the new heavens and the new earth. And it would seem to me that each day that the Apostle Peter would awake, he would remind himself of this glorious truth. The Lord is risen indeed. He's in control. He's sitting on the throne. There is nothing that happens to me outside of my Father's hand. This is hope. Peter would know that Jesus had prayed for him. We may know 
turning to the gospel of John. I pray not only for these, but for those who will believe on my name. This is gospel hope. Matthew Henry said, Everything on earth changes from better to worse, but not our inheritance. It is perfect and incorruptible. It never changes, and it never shall cease to be the most perfect inheritance and gift imaginable. That gift is to be present in the family of God, the bride of Christ at the table of the marriage feast of the Lamb with a glorious resurrected body, a crown of righteousness that does not fade. And since this is true, we can say in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution, we are not afraid of your terror. We are not troubled by your pain. But we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, as Peter will say, and we are ready always to give an answer to every man for the reason of the hope that lies within us with meekness and fear. You see, this is the kind of hope that carries us through our most difficult days. The darkest valleys of life. It's this very resurrection hope that carried Pastor Eric Barker. During World War II, he had spent a number of years in Portugal preaching the gospel under adverse conditions, and he had sent his wife and eight children back to England for safety. His sister and her three children were also evacuated on the, sh- the same ship. And while he stayed behind, he He was finishing up a few missionary matters on the Sunday um, that he was to be there, his final day, Barker's loved ones had left. He, He stood before his congregation and he said, I've just received word that all my family has arrived safely home. And he continued to preach as usual in the service. And it was not until afterward that the congregation understood the weight of his opening words. Little did they know as they heard him preach, as he always had, that he had been handed a wire prior to ascending the pulpit, informing him a submarine had torpedoed the ship and everyone on board was lost. But he knew with hope and confidence that his wife and his children knew the resurrected Lord. This is the living hope, the gospel hope that we have. And this is where Peter will lead us. He's he's pointing us to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even though our suffering be severe, and yet it is, as he says, more precious than gold, though it be tried with fire, it will be found to the praise and honor and glory at the appearing, he says in verse 7, of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying, We have much more than all the prophets who were looking with this same expectant hope. We have much more. 
what has been laid out before us in these past days is the much more, the tip of the iceberg that the prophets of the Old Testament were gazing into. And we have been given the privilege, as it were, for the covering to be removed and to see. Therefore, Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The prophets foretold of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. And that glory is what we await still this day at his return. Peter is reminding them and he's reminding us, keep this before your eyes, the great and glorious coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ on the clouds of glory, when all will be consummated and the day when hope ends and we see him face to face. And we will be like him as we're caught up before the throne of God forever. Jesus already said in in his day, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say to you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which... And yet, having not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear, And have not heard them. Imagine Peter writing in the early New Testament church. Not having perhaps all the gospels to read. Not all the other letters of the Apostle Paul. The whole counsel of God that comes to us. How much more ought our hope to be confident. Unshakable. Unmovable in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul says in Colossians 1. To whom God would make known this mystery that has been hid from the ages and is now made manifest. God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ is here, now, in the heart of his people by his Spirit. The hope of eternal glory is now with anticipation for what is coming. Do you imagine that Christ who dwells in the hearts of his people by faith as a union with Christ, just as Christ has inseparably joined himself to our natures, that somehow this union with Christ in the eternal counsels of God the Father could ever be broken and separated even by our sin? Peter is saying, this is the hope. Paul is saying, this is the hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we can't hardly see it now with our eyes for sure. But the eye of faith beholds it and we anticipate the day when this world collectively around us 
will see him with their eyes. It seems today the whole world has lost its collective mind. The truth has become the lie, and the lie has become the truth. We are returning to darkness and death. But don't let this darkness invade the light. Don't be dismayed by the things you see. Rather, lift up your eyes from where our redemption comes. Let the gospel hope prevail. Fill your minds with the gospel and the sufferings of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Be filled with the hope of the gospel and the coming glory of our Lord. As Peter says in verse 13, hope, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he comes again the second time, you who you love will appear before your very eyes. And you will experience the translation of your mortal bodies into immortality and your spirits wholly cleansed, having no more corruption, no more death, never to be defiled again. And this is where Peter is directing those who are in distress of suffering to look. Be sober, be vigilant. As you turn to the end of this first epistle, he is saying, Satan is going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But he says, resist him in the faith and realize that this affliction that you are going through, God has brought all of his people through the ages to the end, to himself. Christ will accomplish what he's begun in you with gospel hope. He will finish it. And so Peter says in verse 10, but the God of all grace who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a little while will make you perfect, establish, strengthen, Settle you. This is what God is doing today. These four things is what he's accomplishing in gospel hope. The first thing he says is he will perfect you. The God of all grace is perfecting us. And the word used here by Peter is well known to him. It means in some sense making people ready to encounter this roaring lion, if you will. And he does this by applying his grace to that which is lacking in us in order for us to defeat the enemy. And this word is connected to the, the mending of, uh, of nets, which Peter was very familiar with. And he puts this illustration now to work. He says, God will equip his people. He will make them perfect. They will be ready. Just as a net, when it's mended, will be ready for its task. And so God is perfecting his people for the task that he gives to them. Secondly, Peter calls and, and says to us that God will establish you. 
Now, we've seen over the time of these last few days as well that we are prone to halt and stumble even after grace. Peter experienced the same thing. But he's saying here that the gospel hope we have is God will, Jesus Christ does, establish you. Even though we are perhaps afraid we'll bring shame to the name of the Lord or one day may maybe even apostatize from the faith. But Peter is saying, God is saying, the God of all grace is saying, no, hope in me, trust in me, I will establish you. I will keep you from falling. I have prayed for you that your faith fails not. Jude tells us now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. The lion is without teeth and he will be resisted because God establishes us. And third, Peter says he will strengthen us. Don't suspect that we will be able to go to the stake and the fire that we have heard of this morning without this strength that he is willing and able to give. Peter is saying in this strength we will stand. It's this strength that the Hebrews writer says, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. And we don't have this strength. But the strength comes from the same spirit that strengthened Samson. It is the same strength that is promised to us in gospel hope by the inner man, by the spirit of Christ. The last word Peter uses here to have gospel hope against all our enemies is he will settle you. Satan has a desire to drive us off from this foundation of hope. And Peter says, there is one foundation upon which we rest. God will settle you upon it. It is my son. Rest in him. Settle on him. He has bought you with a price. Never forget Peter is saying, the God of all grace who has called you unto eternal glory. He is the one who, after you suffer a while, will perfect you, establish you, strengthen you, settle you. Dear believer, is this your confidence? This your hope? Is this your God, the God of all grace? You need grace? You need cleansing, you need forgiveness, you need strength. The God of all grace, Peter is saying, is able, is willing to do exceeding abundantly above what we could ask or think. This is the hope of the gospel. We're looking toward a coming day to be with Christ. 
Do you remember the conversation that Prudence and Christian had as they were walking? Prudence, do you not think sometimes of the country from whence you came? Christian, yes, but with much shame and detestation. Truly, if I had been mindful of that country from whence I came out, I might have had opportunity to return. But now I desire a better country that is a heavenly. Prudence. Can you remember by what means you find your annoyances at times as if they are vanquished? Christian. Yes. When I think of what I saw at the cross, that will do it. And when I think on my broidered coat, that will do it. And also when I look into the role that I carry in my bosom, that will do it. And my thoughts wax warm about whither I'm going, that will do it. Prudence. And what is it that makes you so desirous to go to Mount Zion? Christian. Why? There I hope to see him alive that did hang dead on the cross. And there I hope to be rid of those things that to this day in me are an annoyance. There they say there is no death. And there I shall dwell with a company as I like best. For to tell you truth, I love him because I was by him eased of my burden and I am weary of my inward sickness. I would fain be where I'll die no more and with a company that shall continually cry, holy, holy, holy. Peter, it seems, as he's writing also this second letter, is stirring up the affections of the heart in anticipation for this very thing, even though they suffer. And even though we suffer and people around us are saying, where is your God? You have said he is coming. You said he will protect you. Where is he now? And Peter responds, No, all things don't continue on from the beginning. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. They were willingly ignorant. Let's not fool ourselves. The people in this world who are rebelling against God and defying his truth are willingly ignorant and know to a measure or other this day is coming. And now Peter says, this same God who has kept the heavens and earth reserved to the last day, he says in chapter 3, verse 11, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth also and the works that are in shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. 
Wherefore, beloved, seeing you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. Peter is telling us all things will soon be made new. There will be a dissolution of all created order, the dismantling of the whole universe by fire, and then by the word of the mouth of the Lord, there will be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And John describes in in Revelation 21 a new heavens and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth are passed away. And he says righteousness is there because our God is there. And this new creation is called the paradise of God. Many people are seeking to get away to a paradise, and even resorts are called by this name. But it is nothing. It is a mirage. It is an aping of this paradise wherein our hope, our gospel hope, anticipates. The Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, labored in England in the 17th century, and he Spent a good deal of his life in suffering in his body. And he himself said there was seldom an hour he didn't experience some kind of pain. And when someone lives in this condition, of course, they're readily aware of how short life is and how certain death is. And in his mid-30s or so, he, he meditated on that passage I quoted already in Colossians 1. Christ in you is a hope of glory. And from those meditations came his his work, the saint's everlasting rest, and it was his practice to meditate each day on the thoughts of heaven and glory. And he said, if you lie complaining of deadness and dullness, that you cannot love Christ nor rejoice in his love, that you have no life in prayer nor any other duty, and yet neglect this quickening employment, you are the cause of your own complaints. Is not thy life hid with Christ in God? Where must thou go? But to Christ for it. And where is that? But to heaven, where Christ is. Thou wilt not come to Christ that thou mayest have life. If thou wouldst have heat and light, why art thou no more in the sunshine? For want of this recourse to heaven, thy soul is a lamp not lighted, and thy duties as a sacrifice without fire. Fetch one coal daily from this altar, and see if the altar offering will not burn. Light thy lamp with this flame, and feed it daily with oil from hence, and see if it will not gloriously shine. Keep close to this reviving fire, and see if thy affections will not be warm. If thy want of love to God, lift up thy eye of faith to heaven. Behold his beauty. Contemplate his excellencies. And see whether his amiableness and perfect goodness will not ravish your heart. 
As exercise gives appetite, strength, and vigor to the body, so these heavenly exercises will quickly cause the increase of grace and spiritual life. Don't we find ourselves, as Paul says, the very earth does, groaning in these bodies with anticipation of the life to come? This very earth that has drank in the blood of millions, drank in the blood of the unborn, drank in the blood on Golgotha's hill of our Lord and Savior, will soon be transformed into a new heavens and a new earth. This is our gospel In heaven, there will be no more, sin, no more sin, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more pain. We will never do again anything in thought, word, or action that displeases our God and our Father. No more persecution, no more disunity, no more division, no more hate filled with love. There will be only perfect pleasure. Psalm 16, in thy presence there is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And there we will find ourselves in the very presence of the God of all hope. The purest and truest kind of pleasure possible. When Paul says, then shall I know him even as I am known. We will have no unanswered questions, no confusion, no ignorance, no longer any need for a message of hope. But we will see him. We will live in forever conscious reality of seeing him face to face. We will finally know perfect love, and we will be perfected from glory to glory to his glory. Heaven will be a place of perfect joy, liberated from the captivity that now holds us bound in some measure in the sinful flesh. But then we will be absolutely perfect and righteous and holy through Christ. Jonathan Edwards said, Let the consideration of what has been said of heaven stir up all earnestness to seek after it. If heaven be such a blessed world, then let it be our chosen country. And the inheritance that we look for and seek, let us turn our course this way and press on to its possession. It is not impossible that this glorious world may be obtained by us. It is offered to us. Though it be so excellent and blessed a country, yet God stands ready to give us an inheritance there if it be but the country that we desire and will choose and diligently seek. God gives us our choice. We may have our inheritance, whatever we choose it, and may obtain heaven if we will seek it by patience, doing. Continuance in well-doing.
I leave you with the words of the writer to the Hebrews. Then lift up your heads, for our redemption draws nigh. Continue to hope till the end when all these things will be revealed. Let us labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is our gospel hope. Let's pray. Our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has been lifted up so feebly even in these days, has drawn our hearts to this glorious hope. And we pray that we may go forward in the confidence, in the strength, and the understanding that Thou art our everything, who is able to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so, Lord, enable us in this present evil age to speak of the hope that lies within us with confidence and assurance so that others around us might see and know and come to believe and rest in and look toward with anticipation the coming glory of our God. Hear our prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.